Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hi guys, it's Maram. I'm going to talk to you today about neuromuscular and spinal disorders. So let's start off talking about weakness, which is one of our most dreadful chief complaints in the AD. you got to make the differential diagnosis whether this is upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron. So when we talk about upper motor neuron, we're referring to any damage involving the brain or spinal cord. So these symptoms are going to be unilateral. You're going to have a positive Vivinsky sign. You're going to have increased muscle tone, increased deep tendon reflexes, no fasciculations, and your distal muscles are going to be more affected than your proximal. Versus lower motor neurons, which affect the anterior horn as well as your peripheral nerves. These are going to affect single muscle groups. Flexors and extensors are usually equally affected. Your deep tendon reflexes are going to be decreased, as well as your muscle tones. And you're going to have muscle atrophy and fasciculations. This is usually a later result, but will be present. Myopathies are going to affect more of your proximal muscles, versus neuropathy, such as Grand Beret, is going to affect more of your distal muscles. An example of ALS combines both upper as well as lower motor neurons. This is your asymmetric weakness in both distal muscle groups. With sensory sparing, you're going to have muscle fasciculations, which refer to lower motor neurons, but a positive Babinski which is your upper motor neuron, as well as hyperreflexia. Now we covered the basics. I think the best way to do this is just go through different disease processes and give a couple of pointers about each one. So let's start off with quadraquina. So this is going to be your peripheral nerves in the vertebral place that are going to get compressed. You're going to have weakness, saddle, anesthesia, and a decreased rectal tone. The treatment for this is always neurosurgery. Versus your conus medullaris, which is normally at the thoracic lumbar region, so it's right before the quadraquina. You don't have as much recovery with this because it involves the tip of the cord. Your epidural abscess, any patient that comes in with back pain and fever, to done diagnosis, you go to epidural abscess. It's a little bit harder in patients who just have back pain, but it will give you a better diagnosis if they have any sort of a history of IV drug use or recent instrument use or anything of that sort. Just consider doing inflammation markers, in, especially in your patients with IV drug use and back pain. And obviously, you diagnose it, diagnosis with MRI. Your syrinx is going to be your fluid collection that expands in a vertebral place. This is your cape-like distribution that we learned about in med school. You're going to have a loss of motor and temperature, but your position and vibration is going to be intact. I like to think of this as a guy holding a cigarette. So he's holding a cigarette, which implies weakness, but then he's also burning himself, which, is, which implies that loss of temperature that I talked to you about. Let's switch gears and talk about myopathies now. Lots of switching gears in this lecture. Don't, don't get vertigo. Get it? Neurology, vertigo. All right, fine, not funny. All right, so myopathy. When we talk about myopathy, we're referring to muscle disease. This is not related to disorders of the intervention of the neuromuscular junction. These are going to present with progressive proximal and symmetric weakness. Nothing sensory here. This is going to spare your extraocular as well as your facial muscles, which is a good way to differentiate it from MG as well as your neuromuscular junction disorders. This is going to be a gradual onset and a slow progression. An example of this would be metabolic myopathy. So this is disorders that have to do with your uh, glucose as well as your lipid utilization as well as energy production in the skeletal muscle. This is going to present at young ages, and it's going to usually have some sort of an exercise intolerance component. They're going to present with muscle cramps as well as myoglobinuria. 
Your periodic paralysis, this is the typical question which they mentioned the little Asian guy that comes in after he just finished working out and just has really bad muscle spasms. You do a CBC and a CMP and you notice that he's pretty hypokalemic. So think of hypokalemia because your potassium is going to intracellularly shift. Um, and always don't forget the association with uh, thyroid toxicosis with this. You can also have periodic uh, paralysis showing up as hyperkalemia attacks. This is going to be shorter and less common than hypokalemia. But now let's talk about myasthenia gravis. This is your most common disease of neuromuscular transmission. A fourth are associated with a thioma. The hallmark of this is pathological fatigue um, or muscle deterioration. So you can have your patient perform repeated tasks here and notice if it's actually weakening. So you could do extraocular movements versus chewing for 30 seconds, anything of that sort. This does not involve sensations. Your reflexes are normal, so are your pupils here. You can test this with ice packs or edrophonium, which is also your tensilon test. Just be careful if you're doing edrophonium, keep in mind that you can have bradycardia with it. So you always want to test with small doses. Start at 2 milligrams IV and have atropine nearby in case your patient goes uh, bradycardic. Two things that I always got confused is myasthenia crisis versus cholinergic crisis. So I'll try and simplify this a little bit for you. So with myasthenia crisis, you have worsening disease because you have an insufficient amount of medications. This is a true emergency because you can have respiratory distress with this and you need to intubate your patient. Your treatment is going to be supportive. You have to decrease your acetylcholine antibodies, so you could do that by either plasmapheresis versus IVIG. You always want to give a dose of steroid after intubation, and you want to stop all their MG medications. Your cholinergic crisis is going to be a side effect of excessive amount of medications. This kind of resembles your organophosphate poisoning that we know about, that cholinergic axis of salvation, urination, diarrhea, gastric distress, MSS, meiosis, and bradycardia. You also want to look for worsening muscle weakness here. So cholinergic as well as muscle weakness. The good thing about both of these is you stop both, you stop MG drugs for both of them. Now let's talk about botulism. So this is caused by Clostridium botulinum, which is an anaerobic that binds to the presynaptic membrane and prevents the release of acetylcholine. You're going to have descending paralysis here. It's going to be painless, and you're not going to have any sensory deficits again. Your, neuro your neurological symptoms usually are present within 72 hours after consumption and are usually anticholinergic, so dry eyes and mouth, dilated pupils, ileus, and urinary retention. Breastfed babies get this less common than formula-fed babies. And remember that your infantile botulism is going to have flabby baby for motor and is going to have constipation for autonomic. Treatment is going to be antitoxin, or for wounds, you're going to debride and give antibiotics. And then one last quick tip on this, too, is your food-borne option. You're going to have GI symptoms first, then you're going to have your bulbular symptoms of weakness, and then you're going to have descending flaccid paralysis, and then your autonomic symptoms slash your anticholinergic symptoms. Now let's talk about Lambert-Ian. This improves after muscle use, and you always want to link that to malignancy. So kind of think of MG except the opposite, and then MS but with cancer. And this is just a failure to release any antibodies. Now let's talk about Guerin-Barre. So this is your ascending motor weakness and areflexia. It can be 
either after a GI infection or even flu vaccines. You have lots of proteins on your lumbar puncture, and treatment is plasmapheresis or IVIG. Now let's talk about MS. So MS is a demyelinating disease. If you have optic neuritis, you must be worked up for MS. Remember, that's that unilateral painful eye. Think of this in a young female with just random neurosymptoms or bilateral IOP. You diagnose this with MRI, or you can even do an LP, which shows uh, oligoclonal dance, as well as an increased protein in your CSF, but not in your plasma. So a couple of take-homes before we keep going. So you want to be able to recognize respiratory distress or failure in these patients. You want to always measure the VC, which I'll talk to you a little bit later about. And if it declines, the book says less than 15 mLs per kilogram, then you urgently want to intubate. You want to use non-depolarizing agents for MG for intubation, but not depolarizing ones. And you want to perform a thorough search to rule out other things, for example, tick paralysis in a child who presents with weakness. Let's talk about myelitis here. This is inflammation of your spinal cord. Your nerve fibers are damaged and they lose their myelin coating. Transverse just means that the entire width of the spinal cord is affected. So you don't need bilateral symmetrical symptoms, but you do need symptoms on both sides of the body. Usually starts out as flaccid and then becomes spastic. Sensory symptoms start in the feet and then they move up to the cervical level. And remember, they follow that dermatome pattern here. Your autonomic involvement could show up as urinary bowel incontinence versus urinary retention or even constipation. Differential diagnosis here of quad equine or cord compression, you don't want to miss that. Your diagnosis is going to be either an LP, which is going to show pleocytosis or an increased IgG level, or you can see lesions on an MRI here. This is caused mostly by idiopathic reasons, just like everything else in medicine, but it also could be autoimmune, secondary to MS lupus, or Sjogren's. Viruses can cause it. The most common are HSV, herpes zoster, CMV, EPV, or HIV. Bacteria can also cause it, the most common being mycoplasma, Lyme disease, and, and cat scratch fever. Treatment, call for help. Talk to your neurologist and your neurosurgeons early on. You want to intubate if the patient is in distress and if it impacted their diaphragm. And you want to consider pressors if they're in neuroshock. Steroids are going to be the mainstay of treatment here. You want to give a high-dose steroid, and then plus or minus plasmapheresis. A third of patients can have reoccurrence, so pay attention to their past history. And, and because you guys enjoyed this lecture so much, we're going to do a little bit of a bonus round and talk a little bit about tube versus ICU for your MG versus GPS. I had both types of patients, so I wanted to do some research on this and kind of learn really the difference and what we should do for each one. So we've heard of NIF, which is your negative inspiratory force. Pretty much measures the strength of the inspiratory muscles, especially the diaphragm. So this is when you have your patient inhale as hard as possible. And you can also refer to this as MIP, which is your maximum inspiratory pressure. Your MEP, this is a little bit different. This is your maximum inspiratory pressure. So it's the opposite of NIF, which we just talked about. This is when you have the patient exhale as hard as they can, and you correlate clinically with the ability to clear their secretions or their cough. Now, FVC, which is your forced vital capacity, we studied, we know about this through med school, this takes into account both your inspiratory as well as your expiratory muscle strength and lung compliance. So it kind of measures both. So the most important thing here, I've read multiple articles that they all agree that don't do 
your patient based on numbers, even though a lot of textbooks tell us to do so. With GPS, there's that 20, 30, 40 rule, and it pretty much says that you intubate if your FBC is below 20 mLs per kilogram, your MIP is less than 30, and your MEP is less than 40. This is the myth. It may predict the risk of actual respiratory failure, but it does not, it does not have a very high specificity for predicting actual intubations. You want to intubate based on your clinical judgment and trends of these numbers, but not just actual numbers. So based on what I read, it seems to be that the best bedside test is FBC, since it takes into consideration both inspiratory and expiratory factors. If your FBC is less than 20 mLs per kilogram, then you have an increased risk of respiratory failure. So these patients should be put into the ICU and monitored closely. If your FBC is less than 10 to 15 mLs per kilogram, it suggests intubation, but really that judgment is yours. You want to look at the patient and make that clinical decision. If your patient is dyspneic but does not need intubation yet, you can consider just doing BiPAP or heated high flow and see how they do. These patients definitely have to go to the ICU, though. With that, I'll leave you till next time.